Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and by the time you're hearing this, you've hopefully seen Extraction 2, the latest film directed by our latest guest, Sam Hargrave. Sam appeared on here once before for the original Extraction. The film star Chris Hemsworth, as a mercenary, hired to extricate people from hostage situations. Things tend to go violently amiss. The first Extraction is best known for an astonishing 12-minute sequence through a building and streets on foot and a high-speed car chase that required Hargrave to strap himself to a speeding car because he didn't want to endanger anybody else on his crew by asking them to strap themselves to that speeding car. You can listen to that in our previous Sam Hargrave podcast. In Extraction 2, he ran around on top of a real moving train to capture a sequence in which a real helicopter swooped in on that real train. It's amazing. And it's part of a continuous sequence that appears, appears to be one long take that's 24 minutes and 7 seconds long, twice as long as the stunning one in the first extraction. And there's still a lot more movie. What I like about the extraction films and Hargrave is how much heart they have mixed in with the stellar stunts and filmmaking. Hargrave grew up in North Carolina watching The Lone Ranger and Zorro, and eventually grew up to be Captain America, doubling for Chris Evans in multiple Marvel films. Those films also introduced him to Hemsworth and the Russo brothers, his partners in the world of extraction. We talk about all of that in this episode, which was recorded in the early days of the writer's strike, so we also talked a bit about the importance of on-set writers. Another thing I really like about Sam Hargrave is that he has a lot to brag about, but if you listen closely, you'll note that he always deflects compliments to other people on his team. You meet a lot of film people who like to boast, and he is the opposite. He dreams big, talks humble, and makes him a real pleasure to talk with. So I hope you enjoyed this talk with Sam Hargrave as much as I did. Sam Hargrave, congratulations. Extraction 2 is awesome. It was so much fun. I got to see it in a theater. And oh, thank you. I got like a sense of vertigo at times. I did a lot of like trying not to blink so I could try to figure, try to catch any edits that happened. And I didn't catch a lot of them. Um, I guess I wanted to start off talking about that incredible long one, or I don't even know how long it is. The first extraction has a 12 minute sequence that is unbroken. You were strapped to a car to shoot it. You did all kinds of incredible things. This one blows that one away. Uh, it goes from a prison break to a train escape. How long is it? How did you do it? Uh, well, first off, thanks, Tim. Uh, it's 21 minutes and seven seconds, but who's counting, right? Uh, it was, a, that one was a lot of work. We, we Because of the first one and the, the response we got from audiences, we figured we need to try to up the ante. You know, we got it's the second movie, got to be bigger and better. So we're like, how do we how do we do that? How do we make something that, um, you know, stays true to the DNA of the first film, but also furthers the character, pushes the action and the entertainment value for the audience. So uh, early on, I mean, in the days of screen, the screenwriting process, it was a concept that Joe brought to me. And he was Joe Russo who, who penned the script and he said, I think it'd be really great to open the movie with a wonder in a prison, an escape from a prison. And so that was kind of the, the first thing I heard about the concept of the second film. And then it changed, you know, the placement of it changed and the elaborate nature of it changed and where they went and the whole journey. But that was kind of the conceit as I understood it for this movie. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty ambitious way to start a movie. And so we thought about it and thought about it, and it from 
concept to completion took, I mean, if you talk about us discussing what it was, a year of mm -hmm. talking about it, writing it, and then rehearsing it with the stunt team coming up with the path we would follow, the methodology of doing these long continuous stitches, you know, in between with the hide cuts because we would change locations. We were hundreds of stunt people over the course of the, the, um, the, the piece, the sequence. And we went from, yeah, prison break to a car chase to a train sequence with real helicopters. And it was the logistics were, were mind blowing. So it was a really impressive feat of cooperation and collaboration from the filmmaking team. You land a helicopter on a train. I don't remember if the train I don't. That's right. Fred North. <laughs> Fred North, the greatest pilot, stunt pilot ever, landed a helicopter on a moving train, not just a train, but it was a moving train at probably, you know, 35, 40 miles per hour. We had a window of I think it was 35 seconds from the time where we entered this clearing where the, the helicopter could safely come down close enough to the train before the other power lines and trees on the other side became you know too dangerous. So we had a, a small window. And the rehearsal process for that was was super intense. It started with, because he had, it wasn't just him in his uh, machine. It was, he had five stunt players in the back, which changes the weight, you know, if they, and so they have to all get off on one side, but if they all ride on one side, then, you know, it's flying cockeyed. So, they had to be, they had to distribute the weight and then they all had to fly in. As he's lowering in, they have to move. So now the weight's transferring and shifting while he's close <laughs> to like touching his skids on a moving train. And then the guys have to hop off without falling off the train. And that's just the stunt. And then we have to capture it on camera, which was me handheld on the top of the train walking underneath the roto wash of this helicopter, which was hurricane force winds. What? And trying not to get blown off the train. But I was close enough to reach out and high five Fred. That's how close I was to the machine as it was landing. Um, and all of that for real. No blue screen, no no fake in it. We did that for real. How fast is the train going? The train was going probably between 30, somewhere at 30, 40 miles an hour. So, you know, we're 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 moving pretty quick because we want the background to be, you know, to have, have motion in it. And that's part of the, the DNA of these movies <laughs> is do do it for real. Practical stunts. What kind of shoes are you wearing to walk on a train at 35 miles per hour holding a big camera? Well, I had these um, ultra, there's like a ultra hike uh, trail runners, which are, it's a, it's a type of shoe that are super light. So I can feel and that the sole's pretty thin, but they're protection enough for running trails, but light enough that you can feel the things underneath you. So I wanted to be able to feel the train. And we put down a, a special type of, uh, it was almost like skateboard tape. You know, the stuff that so skateboarders can stay attached to their board with their their sneakers. So we put that all over the surface of the train so that I could, you know, stick to the train as much as possible. We also had what was called referred to as a dog leash, which was a safety line that ran along the edge of the the the, the train. And I clipped into a harness so that if I fell off, I you know, I wouldn't fall to my demise. And we had some some netting on the side as well in case I or one of the stuntmen offloading from the helicopter tripped or something went south. This is a good time to mention for people listening who may not know this, that you were Captain America's stunt double. That's why you can do all this. <laughs> I was, yes. <laughs> uh, and at some point in all this, you set Chris Hemsworth on fire. 
We did. Yeah. So it was, there was that was an idea that I, I had because I like elements in films, kind of a, a nod to Kurosawa and how he would mess with, you know, rain, earth, fire, or waters in the form of rain and wind. And so we had, it was nighttime and we had, it was very cold and it was snowing. Actually, that was real snow that we had on location, which was beautiful. And so knowing in the forecast that snow was coming up, I thought, what would be an interesting contrast visually to that? And it's like, fire is really cool. Um, it's like, but what's more interesting than just having fires around, like moving fires? How do we get to move? It should be on a person. What if we light Chris Hemsworth on fire and he's punching he's punching his way through a bunch of prisoners on fire? I figured that would be get people's attention, <laughs> if, any, if nothing else. Now, for people listening at home who want to set their family members or friends on fire for their own home movies. No, don't what's don't the best? do that. <laughs> no, but <laughs> the best you... way is don't. <laughs> How on earth do you do that? Well, the fire burns are all about preparation. It's all about prep. And you do there's special layers of clothing, special uh fireproof gels that we use. And you know, you have to take everything into account. Uh, is even the wind like the weather the fire burns differently in different temperatures and the, if the wind's blowing obviously you don't want it blowing back towards you um and so with with chris when we lit and we lit his arm on fire it's not like we put him in a hole a full burn because we couldn't cover up that beautiful face so we lit his arm on fire and had him you know strategically move fighting forward so that the the wind is in his face and blowing the the fire back away from him because if you have a gust of wind that comes up and it wraps around the body, it could come up and burn his face. So it, there is inherent danger in working with fire and you don't want to mess with it unless you're surrounded by and supervised by stunt professionals and never, never mess with fire because once you feel warm, once it's like, Oh, it's getting hot. It's too late. It goes from hot to your third degree burns in a blink of an eye and you don't, don't want to mess with that stuff. So it's all in the prep. You've got the proper clothing, proper gear, proper safety measures and people, you know, we had for Chris, for every single person, who was on fire it was it was chris plus four other stunt performers each person had two safety people who their sole job was just watching them mm -hmm. for chris i think we had three so everybody's just watching something different so like if one set of eyes you know that's it's not enough you need to have multiple sets of eyes on it in case something goes south and you can get in there and keep them safe so don't don't do that at home just <laughs> in the movies when you have supervised by professionals i'm trying to remember the fire is in the prison sequence right Correct. Yeah. We, and that's how we start. Yeah. So during the prison break, the, when things go wild, the, the setup is some of the prisoners have, you know, put these fires together to stay warm because it's prison so crowded. They, they move them outside because they're like, you know, what are you going to what are you going to do? We got to keep them off the street. So we put them in this prison yard. And so they puddle together around these barrels of fire. And so during the course of the fight, somebody makes a homemade Molotov cocktail and they throw it through the air at the riot police. It hits the riot police. Some of the fire, you know, sprays off and hits onto Rake, and then he has to fight his way out. So it starts in the prison yard with Chris Hemsworth on fire. Good lord! How taking way back? How did you first get into stunts? I mean, you were a stuntman before you were a director. Now you're one of the most in-demand directors for very understandable reasons for the scope <laughs> of these kind of stunts. Um, and just the sweep of this movie. But how did it all start? Like if you had to pinpoint the thing when you were a kid, um, when you realized you didn't have fear or pain or something? <laughs> well, no, it's uh, fear is good. Uh, it, it kind of 
you can take it right up to the edge, but if you're not afraid, that's usually when you do silly things that can get you hurt. Fear is an important part of being human. It's the ability, doing stunts for me at least, was kind of the ability to stand up in the face of that fear and act anyway. You know, it's it's normal for people to be, if you're standing on top of a high building, to be afraid. That's normal. It's just how do you act in the face of that fear, which I think kind of translates into many areas of life. Uh, but to answer your question, I think one of the reasons I love film and television so much is because of the effect you can have on other people. You can inspire people. And I was inspired when I was y very young by reruns of The Lone Ranger and Zorro that I would watch that my grandfather would tape on these VHS tapes and send to us. And I would watch those and I would try to imitate what I saw. And, you know, sometimes to the you know, sh much sh chagrin of my mother because she would have to she felt like she had to protect my younger brother because I would do whatever I saw on the TV. And if it was, you know, a big fight, she's like, oh boy, he's going to punch his brother. Not knowing at five years old that it was all fake. Yeah. So I think that implanted the seed early of just kind of seeing these, these stunts and this action stuff on screen as a young kid and then kind of internalizing that. And then I read a lot of Louis L'Amour books growing up. He's a great Western author. And in his stories, they're, they're always, you know, this kind of great hero's journey and about a, a man or a woman pers uh, persevering against untold odds. And they, there's always a great gunfight and a great fist fight in his, whether it's a short story or, or a, you know, a novel length. And my brother and sister and I would, re inspired by me, I went to direct them. I, my sister would hold the camera and I'd choreograph this little fight with my brother, 10 years old, you know. I was 10, my brother was like seven or eight, and we would do these little fight scenes, not from something we saw in a movie, but pay, from the page. Like I would read these Louis L'Amour books, and it was almost like a script for me. It was so detailed. It would be like, you know, double jag, and then he comes with the, the cross, and he does a, a hip throw, a judo toss, and we would put, incorporate these things into little movies and do them. So I think that's where it started, and then by the time I was 14, 15, and was introduced to Jackie Chan films and martial arts, it was over. My, I think my the course was was well well laid for my my path through life and in being introduced to that stuff i did a lot of practicing and wanting to emulate the stunts that i saw in hong kong movies and that led to film school which then led to hollywood and to a podcast with you <laughs> the crowning achievement <laughs> no, um, yeah highlight did you do did you film school before you did stunts or did you do stunts first and then you did film school or what was sort of the timing? Simultaneously, I was doing, professionally, I did stunts after film school. But while in film school in North Carolina, I was doing lots of crazy stunts, building a reel, not even really knowing it. Because I, I was fairly, uh, you know, I would obsess over details and what was right in front of me. And I had, you know, I was just trying to be the best Whatever it was I was doing, I was trying to be the best at it. I kind of wanted to be the white Jackie Chan, which was write, direct, act in, do the stunts, edit, all of it. And so I didn't really think outside of that as a career. It was like making movies, and that was enough. But then a friend of mine said, you know, you're pretty good at falling on your head. <laughs> you could make a living doing that in Hollywood. It's, a, it's called being a stuntman. I was like, huh, that's very interesting. And so I researched it and I just yeah loaded up my Honda Civic, drove across the country, started sleeping on couches of the few people I'd met through the years. Like while in North Carolina, I would intern on films as they would come through, you know, during the summer months or 
I would just try to meet people in the in the community. It was very small back then. Um, but then those people that I met, I kept in touch with. So I would go when I went to L.A., I'd sleep on couches. And I, during the day, I would teach martial arts class to kids or I would do Spider-Man birthday parties on weekends where I dress up as Spider-Man and flip around and get you know, a little bit of money so that I could then go to stunt gyms or gymnastics gyms in the evenings and ask, how do you get into stunts? How do you do this career? And, you know, that was the start. Yeah, that was the that was the beginning. Did you are you from North Carolina? I am, yes, sir. Born and raised. Did you go to UNSC, UNCSA or where were you in film school? Uh, no, UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah, I went I was um, you know, Michael Jordan and Mia Hamm made that school famous. And then I I went there and um and ironically, like a um Joss Whedon's father was a professor there and I took a screenwriting class with him. So then, you know, full Cut to 10, 15 years later when I worked on the first Avengers film with Joss, I got to say, hey, I, I know your dad. And we had a, a good chat about that. But such a small world, such a small community, the film the film community. Your story made me think of Danny McBride. And I don't know if you've seen Righteous Gemstones, but the son on that show. Yeah. That was like the same thing that you did where he goes out to Hollywood, makes it as a stuntman, comes home. Did they, do you think you inspired that at all? Or is it just a parallel thing? Hey, who knows? You know, I mean, they, I don't know. I mean, I met those guys um, when I was, I was doing, uh, I was actually on the set of Iron Man 3 in North Carolina in Wilmington. And I, and I got to meet Danny McBride and his, his team, Adam and company, and they were great. So whether or not it's inspired by, I don't know, but I think it's a, it's a hilarious character. And, you know, it's, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, I haven't yet, we'll see, I haven't yet gone back home, but um, I mean, I do, I visit my parents and I'm, I'm actually going back um in a couple of weeks to do a commencement speech at the Hollywood internship program that I, I was part of there. Um, so I do, I do try to get back not as often as I should, but I do try to get back. Um, but right now, you know, LA is home. Yeah. Wow. Is there kind of a white whale for you in terms of stunts? I mean, I can't, I can't think of anything. This sounds like I'm like, you know, kissing up or something, but my brain can't think of something more outsized, and big than some of the stuff you've done in the extraction movies. Is there something where you're like, I've always wanted to do a guy on a plane over the ocean while it's burning up? Like, is there kind of a white whale for you? I've been really fortunate in the, in my career to have been able to either perform, coordinate or direct some pretty incredible stunts. So I, I really don't, I think I've truthfully, I've gotten to do most of the things that I grew up watching. I've either had a chance to emulate something like that or, you know, do my own version of. I don't think I have a, when it comes to stunts wise, a white whale of like, uh, I have to do this thing before I'm done. Now I do have in, as a filmmaker, there's a white whale, which is an Oscar. Like at some point I, I do that, have my sight set on that little statue. But from a stunt perspective, what I try to do I try not to let that lead my thought process or even when I'm making an action film. It's more about what is, what are people going to appreciate as an audience? And then what am I as a filmmaker going to be challenged by and what fits the character, right? Like it's, it's I don't want to just be stuffing in some crazy stunt because I've always wanted to or because I think it's cool. Now, if we can check off one of those bucket list items for me while serving the character and the best thing for the story, I'm all for it. But I've been really fortunate to do a lot of great things. And, you know, if for whatever reason, if I stopped tomorrow, I wouldn't look back and regret, you know, my career. I think I got to do a lot of cool stuff.
when you picture the Oscar, do you picture like a best director, like a best picture, or are you thinking they need to finally introduce a stunt category and I'm a shoe in? <laughs> no, I would for in no way would I consider myself a shoe in. There are so many great, you know, stunt performers, directors, coordinators out there that it, the competition is very steep. Um, so in no in no category would I be a shoe in. I, I would any version of an Oscar would be I would be appreciated. But what it, sites are set on would be yeah, best picture, best director, like a film that, and I would love for because oftentimes action movies they don't kind of they're kind of put into a category and like their genre and they're not really respected. But I do think you can tell a pretty great and and recently some some action movies have been getting you know recognized for the storytelling that they impart through this action narrative design and i think yeah if it would if it would for me the ideal the white whale would be oscar for yeah for best picture best director putting it out there on tim's podcast there you go well one thing that's cool about this movie is you could have just started it with like explosion after explosion after explosion and people would have been really happy and you grounded it like i really felt for the guy i really felt for tyler um rake and what he's going through and what he's been through and you do make a conscious decision to slow it down at the beginning and really build character and really like build stakes and i thought that was a very cool approach to it you do it on the last one too it's it's a very human scale movie for all the you know amazing stuff going on well i appreciate that and we try our job as directors i feel is to to bring the audience into an experiential uh, journey and if you're not connected to the character, then you, it's it's really, you can lose people very quickly because then you're like, okay, then it becomes about, okay, how big was the explosion? How, how much action? How fast were the cuts? Whereas if you can really, and it is a bit of a test, you know, because you're expecting, you see the trailers and whatever we're surrounding this movie and you also want our action and that's what you're expecting. So it's a bit of a like, say, hey, you know, give, give us a second, come with us while we get to know this guy a little more and we empathize with him. Because once once we open that action valve, it's gonna you're gonna be awash with craziness. So just go with us on this journey, feel for the guy, and connect with this character, so that when we do start all the action, it means more to you because you understand who he is and where he's coming from. So I hope you know. Hopefully, people will be able along for the ride in those early you know, early scenes. You know, the one part that I almost felt like. I was pretty high up in the theater and I was almost like, whoa, like I haven't had this woozy effect since the King Kong Godzilla movie in 2005. Yeah. Um, when you're up on the skyscraper, they're fighting on like glass that's cracking. Where do you shoot that? Is any of this shot on a volume? We, because the movie, it, you know, we wanted to do as much as we can practically. That was our goal. We went, we found this place in Vienna, Austria, this amazing tall building with all this glass and, and then as fate would have it at that time of year, when we were scheduled to shoot there, the time, the block we had, the winds on the top of that building, because they're 600 plus feet up, were like 40, 50 knots, which is pretty darn, you know, powerful. So we talked to the engineers and the safety people and they're like, you can't, you can't be out here during that time. It's too dangerous. Someone could get blown off the roof. And we're like, well, that's not what we want. We want safety first. So we... We shot all of our exteriors, you know, at the base of the building, looking up at this thing and tried to set it up. And then when we went to the top, we had to build that as a set. But it wasn't a volume, which is crazy. We we built a set that I think rivals some of the Marvel sets that I've seen. We went out into like a back lot, we call it, which is a, a large parking lot that we can control. We can control the 
you know, build it so that the lighting is to, to our satisfaction. We have all the stuff there. And we did, we built a two story uh, gym with a rooftop for landing a helicopter on. So it had to be structurally strong enough to land a helicopter. And we, and it was glass, like we, glass and steel. I mean, it was more glass and steel than I've been, I've seen anywhere on a film set before. It was, it was wild. What Phil Ivy, our production designer built it. And it was incredible. You landed another helicopter. <laughs> we did. Yeah. We, oh, I didn't again, but they had the pilots land a helicopter. This was on the, on the rooftop of this, you know, this building that we built. Um, and that one wasn't quite as great. It was not easy. Anytime you're landing and taking off a helicopter, there's danger involved, but it was, it was no moving train. <laughs> Yet it was pretty exciting to see that thing taken off of this, um, you know, this rooftop. But the the really impressive thing during all of that was the the way the stunt team choreographed and designed this action around, you know, what we had built, and we were trying to, you know, figure what were what were the best features of this building to to focus on and to uh, showcase. And part of it was this glass awning, and we're like, oof, if we, because you know, when you, like we spoke about at the beginning, fear is kind of a, a natural innate human thing. And when your heights is one of those evolutionary <laughs> triggers, it's like, oh, I shouldn't be up here. This is dangerous. You know, I could, I could die. And so to share that feeling with audiences to have Tyler Rake, you know, saving Nick from falling off this building or fighting on top with the villain, like those feelings, those sensibilities is what you want to share with the audience. Because again, I want this to be experiential, just like with the one or you're doing this escape in real time and you should feel tired by the end of it, it's like when our characters are on the edge of this glass building and there's danger and there's wind and, you know, you should be sucking in your breath and being like, oh my gosh, don't fall, Tyler, don't fall. And I think we got there, you know, hopefully when you, yeah. people view it, they'll have that feeling. Yeah, they got to watch on a big screen. I don't know if it'll work on a phone, but it probably will. Right, a little different, a little different. So a couple of technical questions. Did you use a volume for anything? I know you avoided green screens whenever you could. Um, no, we, we did not use the volume for anything um, on this film. We, we were we did when we had to, a lot of it because we were usually with our action sequences, mostly exterior or when we were fighting in that the gym was exterior light. So we, we had to get um, sunlight and, and the volume is great for, it's hard to do exterior uh, shoots on a volume just to get the amount of the the sunlight is you know pretty powerful light source and so to replicate that on a volume is very difficult uh, even on the mandalorian when i worked on that show we, we did you know exteriors and we wanted hard sunlight we still did that exterior with blue screen so it wasn't all volume it's, it's a very it's an amazing tool but it's pretty specific um for the the kind of lighting that you get so it's either a cloudy day or like interiors are great with the control you can get, but we did not use a volume on this movie, no. And in the 2107 wonder, what is the longest continuous actual shot, unless that's like a trade secret that you don't want to give away? Trade secret. However, the longest portion was on in the prison escape. So there's, you know, there's lots of different links throughout, some as short as, you know, for a big stunt, as short as maybe 10 seconds or less, because... I never wanted to, because of some of the craziness that these stunt performers are going through, I want to make sure that we focus on that. And so you can get into trouble if you're in the course of this long sequence and you have dialogue and you're moving, you're running, and, and, and then a big stunt. Sometimes the focus can come away from the stunt and then it becomes a little more dangerous. You really have to have everybody's 100% undivided attention when you're doing these dangerous things so that you can prepare for it, execute it, and then after it happens, make sure that the performer's okay, make sure the footage is good, and then you can move on. But 
say you're going through this thing and you crash a car and then leave the guy behind be like see you were going on to this dialogue that just didn't feel right so you have to break it up in these these sections so you can give each piece each detail exactly what it needs of, of your focus and time but i say the longest one sorry i danced around your question the longest uh single take or single portion was probably two minutes and that was a part of the in the uh, courtyard we had a long a long sequence in the courtyard yeah yeah that, that was amazing i mean you hit them really well i i may have found you know there's parts where like it passes by a shadow and you go oh they must have cut there and you feel really smart yeah yeah there's other places where you clearly were able to sneak them in where no one would ever catch it well part of the part of the dna of the camera because for me in these extended takes at least my sensibilities is the camera becomes or acts like the audience member so you are as the camera you're in the scene and you're reacting like a character in in the in the piece with them in the sequence so if some a noise happens over here we can usually kind of look or if someone throws a look we follow that look because we're curious and because of that because of the movement and the dynamic uh sensibility of the camera it lends itself to hiding a lot of stitches and transitions in the movement there's a lot of foreground elements that move through the frame we're trying to keep the frame very full and busy so there are a lot of times where you know it might be a stitch might not be and so we we kind of just try to build in those elements so that we can hide stitches where we need to but it's not so obvious that you've never seen it before so when there's a lot of foreground wipes or you're moving the camera you're panning left or right when that's the language organically of the style then you have built in a way to hide cuts and hide stitches that are not felt when you're in the you know experience of the sequence. You know, the last thing I would ask is kind of timely, and I don't know if you're able to answer it because there's a lot of moving parts and stuff at this point, and people don't necessarily know the answer to this, but we're about nine hours into the WGA strike, um, and yeah. I've read about some projects where people wouldn't have, there was a Bond movie, I believe in 2008, I think it was Quantum of Solace, where they apparently were not able to do rewrites very often on set um, because there were only like two people who were authorized to do it under the rules. Yep. With a movie like this, how would a strike have affected you if you had been shooting this during? It probably would have shut us down because we, or at least frozen us. It would have been a very different movie, put it that way, because there is a, a, is a strong script going in. And yet when we get there, Chris is going to have ideas. Different actors have a way that it's going to adjust their expression of the scene. Or you'll you'll be you'll have shot something and a scene will come up and you're like, man, we we already covered that material. Why don't do we need this scene? Or we you know we because we lost that scene earlier, we we skipped it. Now we're getting to a place like, wow, we need something here to bridge this gap. Like we've we changed something before, now we have to bridge the gap. And so we were constantly adding and changing and rewriting and and so we and we had writers on set so it was it would have been very difficult to finish this film had we been in the middle of a writer strike so hopefully all of this can get settled you know the um, soon so that we everybody can get back to work and you know taking care of their, their families and loved ones because it's a you know it's important i mean i i, I stand with the the writers like they you know they need to get what it's a it's a changing landscape right with all of the streamers and whatnot and you have to adapt and and um and find a way through and i think that's what the strike is about is like finding a way through for them and so uh, you know i'm supportive so hopefully they they find a a swift resolution to all this 